the Dr. Lori Marvis podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Kim Williams, former president of the American College of Cardiology, and now vice president. Is that correct, sir? Immediate past president. Immediate past president, gotcha. Uh, but also chief of cardiology at Rush University. And uh, today he's uh, kind enough to share some time with us to share us how he found his journey to a plant-based diet. So how are you doing today? Uh, doing very well. Um, sorry about my voice. It's a little hoarse, but uh, like my wife likes to say, I have a face for radio and a voice for newsprint. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get through it okay. I really appreciate your having me today. Oh, thank you. So if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about, you know, how your journey began, even this as a doc, um, you know, that's kind of fun, too, to see why people actually wanted to become a physician. Well, it's interesting that uh, we do have healthcare crises in the United States, and you know we don't have enough uh, physician practitioners. It'd be great to take the, the best and brightest students and to make sure that they're going into medicine. We are struggling um, to um, continue to fill the gap left by some of the foreign medical graduates who are uh, now no longer encouraged to come to the United States, and we're worried about what's going to happen with the future. Um, but, and, you know, enough has been said about that, I think, for um, uh, recently. However, um, we do have uh, an increasing number of medical students, and I'm just hoping that most of them will at least consider cardiovascular disease as long as cardiovascular disease is number one. So why am I worried about it? Uh, you know, we've actually had with a, a lot of hard work uh, by a lot of uh, folks, a lot of people dedicated to uh, reducing cardiovascular death in the United States, we had had consistently over the last, say, 40, 1972, so it would be about 45, 44 years of decreasing cardiovascular mortality. And then last year, when the statistics came out, cardiovascular mortality had actually increased in the United States for the first time in over four decades. So why is it? Did we run out of drug-eluting stents or stop doing bypass surgeries? What, what was it? Well, uh, you know, I think there's a couple of things at play here. One is the fact that when you extend someone's sick life by saving them from heart rate, uh, heart attack death, and you're using all the guideline-driven management, including statins and aspirin, et cetera, you take the people who are at high risk to the cath lab and you open up arteries and those that can't be opened, if it's appropriate, do bypass surgery. Um, you, can, you can lower, you can make a difference. Okay, uh, but you're not curing anyone. You're really just delaying the inevitable that something cardiovascular is going to happen, or if you've done really a good job, you will have their death be something else later. But at some point, we all pass away, and so um, the question is, you know, how can we, um, you know, make even more strides in therapies? I'm not sure that we can. Uh, we will continue to improve, no question, but can we improve faster than uh, folks are going to die from heart disease? Apparently, that's not happening right now. Therefore, drum roll, we need to change. We need to change things. We need to change uh, instead of, like that's what I like to say, instead of mopping up the floor, we need to turn off the faucet. We need to change um, from so much event-driven treatment to prevent-driven treatment make sure that people don't have it to save them from. And so that's going to take a lot of attention to re-educating all of the physicians, including cardiology, on the benefits of what they've heard but haven't delved into. Maybe not personally, um, but um, professionally, they really need to. Uh, and that is diet and exercise. 
Now, it's very true that you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. Therefore, you know, the nutrition becomes the, the, the basis for sound medical therapy uh, and prevention. So how did you find that that came true to you for you personally? How did, how did you decide to change your diet? So it's interesting that uh, I had been exposed um, by a gentleman in the Association of Black Cardiologists. His name was Taswell Banks. Taswell was always talking about the Ornish diet and vegetarian this and vegetarian that. And he was the director of the uh, coronary care unit at uh, Howard University in D.C., at uh, D.C. General Hospital. And he was always saying that the first thing they did under his guidance in the coronary care unit is switch some the heart attack victims to a plant-based diet. And on that vegetarian diet, there were some people who went back, but the people who didn't go back, not one of them ever had a heart attack ever again. And we would all kind of roll our eyes and say, Taswell, can you just please publish it? Let's get it peer-reviewed. Let's take a look, you know. But, you know, the appropriate kind of medical skepticism that we have about everything mm -hmm. uh, and that we should have about everything. I mean, if I just listed for you quickly the things in my recent career, the last 10 years that have blown up in our faces, uh, niacin, uh, hormone replacement therapy for women, uh, vitamin E, vitamin C, vitamin A, folic acid, randomized trials show that they do not help outcomes, even though they may help a particular lab test or uh, so, you know, make a risk factor better, they don't actually improve outcomes. And so, you know, we, we should have skepticism, skepticism, no question about it. We should demand data. Randomized trials, large observational trials, we should demand data. And so, um, you know, but Taswell was very confident in what he was doing. And uh, it's interesting that years later, uh, when I was doing much more medicine and less tennis, because uh, my kid, who was a very talented, nationally ranked tennis player, aged out of the juniors and uh, went to college and was playing baseball more than tennis. Mm -hmm. And I was on court twice a day, every day. Mm -hmm. uh, we would take off Mondays. But that was about it. I was on court, you know, either warming him up or teaching him a lesson. One of the, one of the two or coaching a junior development that he was, he was at. I was on twi court twice a day. And so when that stopped, uh, and I also was sort of in my late 40s, uh, those two things together drove my cholesterol from its usual LDL of back when 110, when 110 was actually pretty good, and we know better now, <laughs> um, 170. Wow. And that's a, that people who are in their 40s have to, you know, just because your, your cholesterol used to be good doesn't mean it still is. You need to have it done periodically. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. The other idea is that when you are doing extremes of exercise, you are able to compensate to some degree for your cholesterol pattern. It helps with diabetes, man, uh, prevention and management, et cetera. But ultimately, uh, if your cholesterol is going to go up because you don't have the proper diet, uh, they, you really need to know that. And so you should be screened every few years. So anyway, my diet at the time was considered heart healthy, no red meat, uh, no fried foods. I was eating you know, chicken and fish, no skin, not fried. And um, thinking that that was a low-fat, low-cholesterol meal. Well, it was low-fat, but it wasn't low-cholesterol. It also had a lot of animal protein that we didn't know back then was actually very damaging. And so what I ended up uh, with was an LDL cholesterol that had gone up from 110-ish to 170. And uh, being alarmed at that, I figured out that I should change my diet that day. And 
uh, adhering to those words of Taswell Banks, <laughs> uh, who was always talking about uh, Dean Ornish's diet. I looked it up. I also looked up the uh, of what I was eating. Looked up the cholesterol content of food. That probably changed me more than anything. Mm. To realize that chicken breast had just a little bit more cholesterol than a pork chop. I didn't think I was eating pork chop equivalents. Uh, salmon, extremely high in cholesterol. Tuna, not so much. You know, tilapia, yeah, so salmon. Everyone should actually go. If you're going to eat animals, you should at least know what's in them. Okay. Mm. So you look at the amount of animal protein, the amount of saturated fat, the amount of cholesterol. And, and you would come to the conclusion that if you don't want that in your body, you need plant-based nutrition. So anyway, six weeks later, my LDL cholesterol was down to 90. And uh, I didn't have to take a statin or anything like that. Nothing against statins, okay? If you have a population that is not doing plant-based nutrition, uh, and I would say even some who are, if they have the genes that make their cholesterol really high, their outcome is going to be better with statins. Now, statins are notorious for having so-called statin intolerance. We actually have an American College of Cardiology app for your iPhone for <laughs> statin intolerance, so how to manage it, how to try to work your way around it. But it's a, it's a major issue. The other issue is that our best data is with high-dose statins, mm. better than low-dose statins in terms of you know, 20 30% decrease in heart attack, stroke, and death. A problem with statins that it tends to induce diabetes in people who were going to develop it down the road anyway. Mm. So it doesn't really sound like something that you would like to do. Um, joint uh, pains on occasion, muscle pains fairly frequently. Um, so our statin intolerance, you know, it's, it's up there. I, I would say in my practice at least 15%. The literature would say it's 8%. I think it's maybe I have a special population or a selected population that seems to be more frequent. But I can tell you, Overall, what the statins do is have an effect on the Medicare budget because the death rate from cardiovascular disease, stroke, heart attack goes down. The number of people still alive who have to take medications, who have to see their doctor, dramatically increases. And so I blame statins for breaking the Medicare budget because people are not dead. Okay? And so... Um, there are definitely benefits, but is that the right way to go about it? Is that the right way to, to control a cholesterol if it can be controlled by lifestyle? Mm -hmm. um, so we do try to get everyone who doesn't have known disease to change their diet completely uh, to prevent the disease. And then if a person does have known coronary artery disease, for example, they've had a heart attack, they have plaque in their arteries that's been demonstrated with one technique or another, we try to get that plaque to regress. And right now, we only have about five things that we know will regress. One is the very new, very expensive, new cholesterol medicines. You inject it twice a month uh, under your skin, and it drives your cholesterol way down. They're called PCSK9 inhibitors. Um, they actually do regress plaque. There's high-dose uh, resuvastatin, high-dose atorvastatin, and then the last two are diets, and that's the orange diet and the Esselstyn diet. So all five are useful for decreasing plaque burden and also decreasing cardiac events and stroke. And so if a person has a lot of plaque burden, I pick the strongest statin that they can, um, that they can tolerate and the, the best plant-based diet. So I use Ornish more for prevention, even though he does have regression data. 
and I use Esselstyn more for regression and obesity mm -hmm. uh, because it's a good way to lose, lose weight and get control of the diabetes and hypertension that are associated with that. So I'm curious, what parameters do you would you put someone, let's say they've been on a very strict Esselstyn-type diet, Ornish, and their cholesterol still is higher than, let's say, 150, what, where do you say, where do you put them on statins, or do you? What is your parameters? I'm curious. Right. So, um, so again, we're talking about LDL cholesterol. You can talk about non-HDL cholesterol if you want, but let's talk about LDL, LDL. cholesterol. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, um, we, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines, removed targets uh, for most of practice because we started treating the overall risk. Mm -hmm. And so the answer to your question actually depends. There's an app for that. It's, uh, it's the ACCAHA uh, ASCBD calculator. It stands for Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease. Uh, for those of you in the audience, you can actually look up ASCBD in your app store download the app, do your own profile, do all your family's profile. It requires uh, knowledge of whether or not you're diabetic. And if you haven't had a test for um, what they call the A1C, which tells you what your um, blood sugar has been for the last month, you should have one if you're at risk. Um, your recent blood pressure, whether or not you're smoking, and I just know nobody in the audience is, or uh, in the listing audience, <laughs> um, and your age, gender, um, and your um, uh, ethnicity. You put all that in, it tells you what your risk is. If your risk is high, that is more than 7.5% likelihood of a cardiovascular event, stroke, heart attack, death, in the next 10 years, you really should be on some kind of program to reduce it. And that program could be diet, exercise, and if it's not reduced enough, um, then you use the, uh, the statins. Um, and so the answer really is variable. And our, our, our our guidelines on this area have been sort of controversial. A lot of people did not like the idea of removing, for example, for coronary disease patients, removing the LDL of 70. We were all looking for an LDL of 70 or less. Um, removing that, the preponderance of the data says it really should be removed, that what we needed to do was use the highest dose statin and the best treatment available. Uh, do everything we can to get the LDL as low as possible. Um, if you were to try to correlate it with regression, which I mentioned a, a little earlier, you usually can stabilize plaque at around 70. Mm -hmm. If you want good regression, you probably want it around 40 or maybe even less. The scary part for most of us was thinking, growing up thinking that if we had a, an LDL cholesterol that was too low, that a brain wouldn't work or something bad would happen to you. Now that we know that there are people with PCSK9 mutations that led to that whole PCSK9 uh, and the LDL is 114, and they do fine. And now we actually have good data, mostly from the combination of hopefully diet plus statin plus PCSK9, that there are people with LDLs in the, in the 20s. Um, the only thing that's been found so far is that if your LDL is less than 25, you may increase the risk of cataract development. But uh, if your LDL is 30, you don't see that, and you are going to get good plaque regression. Mm -hmm. So for the sickest of the population, we do everything we can to get the LDL as low as possible. Um, but what I haven't answered for you, because the guidelines are still being thought about, is now that we have the PCSK9s, if somebody's doing Esselstyn diet, doing a statin, and their LDL is still blank, 
when do we pull out the PCSK9s? And, and that is something that we have to answer. We, we need data. I would personally feel more um, thrilled about it if the LDL was less than 50 or 40 or so. But, you know, that's extrapolation of data, not really a randomized trial. Now, those are individuals with known cardiac disease. What if someone mm -hmm. who has no history of cardiac disease or they have a low-risk profile, what if their LDL is higher than, let's say, 50? Do you do any intervention at that time or even if they're eating this type of diet? Well, let's go back and, and talk about the whole gamut of people in terms of prevention. Number one is if your LDL cholesterol is more than 190, more than likely you have what's called heterozygous familial hyperlipidemia if you're coming to see a cardiologist. If you're going to a pediatrician, it might be homozygous familial hyperlipidemia. Um, and so those people are really going to need uh, intensive management, and there's no question about it. And um, they probably should be very early started on as much statin as they can tolerate and the PCSK9 inhibitors doing everything. There are plasmapheresis and uh, very expensive medications to try to uh, change the outcome in, in those conditions um, for, the, for the homozygotes. For the heterozygotes, a lot of times they will respond to diet, they'll respond to statins, but it, you know they'll end up going from 195 down to 130. And it's, while it's a tremendous improvement and, a, and it'll be associated with a great uh, uh, incre increase in their life expectancy, it's not what you'd like. You'd like it to be down in the 50 or 70. And that's where we tend to use the um, uh, PCSK9 inhibitors. So the PCSK9 inhibitors actually are, have been shown to do about a 60% decrease. No matter what you, you're doing, statin, azetamide, vegan diet, you get another 60% reduction in LDL by using those drugs. Problem with the drugs is the expense. And my big concern, uh, which I'm pretty public about, is that it drives up healthcare disparities because a uh, highly educated, highly employed, highly uh, remunerated um, uh, or wealthy patients can afford it, and the older patients, particularly inner-city patients, they can't. And so, you know, it's, uh, have a set of drugs that's going to make a larger separation of the population outcomes based on economics is just uh, worrisome. That's absolutely true. I'm curious, when you work with your colleagues, have you had any influence over them changing their recommendations for patients as far as nutritional recommendations? Well, I'd like to say that um, uh, as of last week, uh, Rush Cardiology has 6.75 vegans. <laughs> <laughs> what is the 0.75? Well, yeah. it's, uh, uh, our, um, our regenerative cardiologist, Dr. Gary Sher, he actually is, says that he's vegan until 6 p.m. <laughs> and so, we all chuckle, but there's actually data that says that doing plant-based, every plant-based meal that you do, even as meatless Mondays, you can actually see a difference in outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so we applaud it and, you know, hope that he'll go even further because he's a great guy and we want to keep his uh, research going and keep him healthy. That's fantastic. Do you have any suggestions for those, let's say, patients who are, are doing this type of diet, but their doctors are unaware of the new uh, education? What did you tell those patients to share with their, maybe their primary care doctor or other cardiologists who are not so informed as you are about this type of diet? Well, until recently, it was difficult. <clears throat> um, we are uh, 
again, putting together at the American College of Cardiology, we have a prevention committee, and we have a nutrition uh, sub uh, task force in, within that prevention committee, and we're putting together um, some you know, very comprehensive works on diet and uh, everything from trying to change hospital food to changing individual behaviors and uh, talking about everything from diet to mindfulness and spirituality and all the things that it takes to improve uh, cardiovascular outcomes that are evidence-based, including things like med meditation, which I wasn't into that. And I have to admit, I embarrassingly on the call said, Dean, talking to Dean Ornish, there's no evidence for that. And he said, I, yeah, there is. So I, I, I wish I had Googled it a second earlier <laughs> before I started, <laughs> because there's definitely evidence uh, that changing um, mindfulness with meditation improves cardiac, cardiac outcomes. It decreases cardiovascular events. Probably a blood pressure medicine or medic, um, mechanism, decreasing catecholamine levels, which makes your platelets less, less sticky and decreases your blood pressure. You put those two things together, and of course, you're going to decrease cardiac events. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, we are putting that kind of data out there, and those reviews hopefully will be accepted by the journal that, that we have, the Journal of American College of Cardiology, which is the number one cardiac journal in the world. And so it should have a wide enough audience to actually, um, you know, capture the imagination uh, and the practice of cardiology. Um, and until those papers are peer-reviewed and come out, I would say that what we really need to do is uh, point everyone to the Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, there's been a lot of data coming out, uh, you know, red meat kills, processed red meat kills you faster. A lot of it comes out of the nurses' health study and the health professionals' study where they put together all of the data on nutrition and correlated with outcomes in terms of heart attack, stroke, and death, and, and all kinds of outcomes. And probably the, there's so many articles that they've done, but the most recent that really is a game changer would be the October, uh, I think it's October 1st, Journal of the American Medical Association that talked specifically about animal protein versus vegetable protein. Okay. Uh, one second. And trying to decline a phone call, but it's actually not getting in the way, right? You can still hear me? I can still hear you. I just can't see you. It's okay. Okay. There we go. All right. And so, um, as it turns out, um, that was a wonderful study that collected nutrition uh, surveys and then correlated nutrition content with mortality. Now that actually was very helpful and it, it made a distinction between animal protein sources, dairy, eggs, fish, poultry, red meat, and processed red meat, okay? And con contrasted that to the outcomes with plant-based nutrition and uh, or more vegetable protein, I should say. And the results were very striking, okay? Number one, um, if I can digress for a minute, I was fighting all of 2015 or so as president of the American College of Cardiology, fighting with the uh, committee who were trying to put together the dietary guidelines for the United States for 2015 to 2020. It didn't come out until 2016 because a lot of people were fighting in different directions and trying to change the recommendations. As it turns out, um, they had said in the original document that uh, the American College of Cardiology says it's okay to eat as much cholesterol as you want. 
that is not at all what we had said. And I had to, you know, show them what it is that we said in our guidelines, which they were quoting and, and misinterpreting. And they had one other reference um, that said that there was no relationship between cardiovascular disease and uh, egg consumption. The problem was that that actually was the first two lines of the abstract. If you read the rest of the abstract, it said, but if you do seven eggs a week versus one or one or uh, zero per week, you increase your diabetes rate by 42%. Mm. But if you entered one of those studies with diabetes, it increased your cardiovascular event rate by 69%. That was not a negative study, not by any stretch of that abstract. And so after we presented the data that they had actually put in, in their document supporting the idea of no cholesterol, and then gave them additional data on how cholesterol does indeed increase your cholesterol. If you're particularly if you're a hyper responder, you're eating very little, you eat cholesterol, your cholesterol goes high. I obviously knew it because it happened to me. <laughs> um, it turns out um, we had an, a, a 2002 statement by the Institute of Medicine that was very particular, analyzed this very carefully, and came to the conclusion, which ultimately did end up in our dietary guidelines for the United States, um, that one, if you're eating a healthy diet, you should eat as little cholesterol as possible. To me, as little as possible is zero. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are only three animal products that do not have cholesterol. That's egg whites, uh, jello, and honey. <laughs> and so everything else needs to go. And then the egg whites uh, come into question, getting back to that article um, with uh, in Journal of American Medical Association, um, looking at those different types of animal protein. Uh, the only good news is that if you break it down, um, all-cause all mortality broken down into cancer deaths, heart disease deaths, and other, that dairy was not associated with uh, cancer deaths. That was good to hear. Unfortunately, if you looked at the cancer deaths, it turns out that eggs caused more cancer deaths than, or was associated with more cancer deaths than uh, even processed red meat. Interestingly enough, if you looked at the cardiovascular disease deaths, it was processed red meat was way ahead of everything else. And the eggs, the point estimate looked bad, 12% uh, increase in cardiovascular death. But that the point estimate was equal to fish and poultry, but it was didn't reach statistical significance. The error bars, for those of you in the audience who are statisticians, you'll recognize that the error bars or confidence intervals are related to the number of people in the study. And of course, the brain goes down to the lower part where all those people died of cancer. Mm. If you die of cancer, you're not available to have a heart attack. Dead people don't have heart attacks. And so it, that whole idea that eggs don't, don't have a statistically significant relationship with heart disease becomes like, yeah, it's true, but who cares that you're, you're dying of, you're dead, okay? Mm. And you look up at the all-cause mortality, uh, eggs are a bit worse than everything than uh, uh, a processed, other than processed red meat. And so anyway, uh, that's a lot of detail about that article because it was very formative and I show it to everyone. I, you know, I, healthcare workers, patients, I show that data all the time uh, to convince people uh, that they need to change their eating habits. I think I'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes to share with that one. And I know That'll you... And I appreciate it. And I know you're busy and you have other appointments in uh, for taking the time out to speak with us today. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Williams.
Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. And uh, you guys have a great day. All right. You too.